ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن الا وانتم مسلمون يا ايها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحده وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والارham ان الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم اعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما اما بعد فإن أستك الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was sitting one time with his companions hanging out essentially relaxing talking and he was also doing something that he loved which was spending time with his beloved grandchildren Hassan and Hussein رضي الله عنهم and so children, as you know, when they're young, when they're three, four, five years old, they like when the adults are speaking to get up and to be heard. They like to get up and to take part in the conversation. And so Hussain, he stood up because he had something to say. And the thing about Hussain, although his other brother Hassan was well-spoken, Hussain spoke with a very deep stutter. So he had difficulty completing words and completing sentences. And so he stands up in this gathering and he begins talking. And he's just going and going as a child does. Stumbling and stuttering and stumbling and stuttering over all of his words. And he keeps going. And the companions start to kind of look at each other, not in a malicious way, but in a like poor child, like poor kid. They felt bad. And they look to the Prophet to see what is his reaction. And he's sitting there looking, smiling. Grinning ear to ear, just looking at him. And when he's done, he lets him finish. And we think, look, when we're in that situation, if our child does something like that, normally what do we do as parents? Even if they're not stuttering, what do we do as parents? We try to complete their thought for them or complete their sentence to try to, you know, finish whatever that needs to be said to get them to be quiet so we can move on. Right? Or to try to help and speak over them or, you know, do something to get them to be quiet so we can move on with the conversation. He didn't do any of that, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He sat. He smiled, he listened, and when Hussein was done, he turned to the companions and he said, don't feel bad for him. This is something that he inherited from his uncle Musa salam, Because that great prophet of Allah, he also spoke with a stutter. So in that moment, he understood what it is that Hussein needed. He needed that positive validation. He needed that reinforcement. And this was the intelligence and the awareness of the Prophet ﷺ that we think about when we say, when we hear ayat, that we have not sent him except as a mercy to mankind. When we talk about the etiquette and the adab and the manners and all of the, you know, these types of characteristics of the Prophet ﷺ, these are the examples that come to mind. But as we talk about following that good conduct and that good character, we tend to simplify it down to something very basic. So we say we're going to hear something about good character and conduct. So tonight when I go out to eat, 
I'm going to make sure to say please and thank you to my waiter or waitress. You know, when I speak to my kids or speak to my parents, I'm not going to shout tonight. That, you know, those things, that's just part of not being like a jerk. It's just part of being a decent human being. But we've made it the standard of good character. But what is it about the character of the Prophet wasallam that separated his conduct to such an extent that it's the model to be followed? What's so different about what he did versus what we do when we try to act with good etiquette? As we know the ayah of the Qur'an, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِتُمْ حَرِيسٌ عَلَيْكُمْ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَعُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ That there has come to you a messenger from amongst yourselves, what you suffer grieves him. The struggles that you face, the hardship that you go through, it concerns him. And he, he feels for you. And he's concerned over you. And he's kind and merciful to the believers. And so we see that there's an extra level of, selfless, of selflessness. And we know the examples when the Bedouin came into the masjid and he urinated in the corner. And the companions rightfully got upset. And the Prophet ﷺ said, let him finish. And when he was done talking, he sat him down, understanding that this is someone that's coming out from the country. He doesn't understand our civilization, our culture, our way of doing things. So he sat him down and he explained, this is where we glorify the name of Allah. This is where we put our face on the ground to glorify the name of Allah. It's not appropriate to act like this. And so then he understood because the Prophet spoke to him at his level, understanding what type of person he is. So then the Bedouin said, Oh Allah, have mercy on me and him, but none of the other ones that got upset. He said, don't, don't limit Allah's mercy. Allah's mercy is vast. We know the young man that came into the masjid and asked the Prophet give me permission to commit zina. Give me permission to fornicate. Imagine someone walked in and made that request and not using the formal terminology, how we would react. And the companions, again, they were upset. This is disrespectful to the Prophet ﷺ. But he took him aside and he said, Look, this thing that you're asking me, would you like it if someone did that with your sister or some relative of yours? And he said, No, absolutely not. He said, If you were to do this, it would involve someone else's sister or their relative. And he put his hand on his chest, he made dua for him. Now what's, what's fascinating about this story is that the Prophet ﷺ could have very easily told him Okay, you're asking about committing fornication. This is the Islamic ruling on it. This is the punishment for it. This is what will happen to you. This is what will happen to you on the Day of Judgment if you do this. Now go make your decision. He could have very easily done that. But he had the awareness and the understanding and the compassion. He understood the struggle that he was going through and how to respond to it in a compassionate manner such that the outcome of changing the young man's behavior is achieved. He didn't just drop the information on him and send him on his way because he probably would have gone and slipped up and done something that he shouldn't have done. But he understood how to speak to him in that compassionate manner and that is that core trait of empathy that the Prophet ﷺ had. That he's able to look and see things from someone else's perspective and speak to them in the such a way that it has that impact, it has that effect. You know, think about if you have a friend that drinks alcohol. Right now, now, one way of approaching that is to go to that friend and say, don't you know the Islamic rule on alcohol? Alcohol is haram. Here's the ayah, here are the hadith about it. Here's the punishments for it. I've done my part. You go do whatever you're going to do, but just understand that here's everything that Islam says about it. Right? We all know that that's not going to change their behavior. They're still going to do it regardless. And so we say, okay, I understand that. Let me take it to the next step. 
And so from, from a sincere place, from a well-intentioned place, we'll go to them and we'll say, brother or sister, look at me. I don't drink. I've never tasted alcohol in my life. It's not that hard. If I can do it, you can do it too. Right? Look at me. I, I'm the example. I haven't done it. If I can give it up, you can give it up. But that's a superficial understanding. See, because that understanding is neglecting to take into account the fact that perhaps I grew up in a household where I had practicing Muslim family. And so we never had alcohol in my home. And by extension, the social circle that my parents associated with, they didn't drink either. And so by the time I got to high school or college or the work environment and someone offered me a drink, it just wasn't something that I did. And so yes, there may have been a struggle, there may have been parts where it was difficult to say no and all of those things. It's not to trivialize that. But at the end of the day, I had a relatively easier time saying no than somebody else. My friend in this case, on the other hand, they may have grown up in a home where alcohol was freely served. And the social circle that they were in freely drank alcohol. And so by the time they got to high school or college or the work environment, it wasn't an issue of do I try it or not. It was just something that they did. It was something that was a regular habitual practice. So for me to now say to that person, look at me, it's so easy. That's being very disingenuous to their situation. And it's, it's not having proper compassion and a proper understanding of what someone else is going through. And see, and this, this core element of compassion, understanding what someone else is going through, this is something that is a very difficult part of the society that we live in. See, when we talk about things like systemic poverty or racism or, you know, immigration and refugees and all of these like, major, major issues, what we find at the core of a lot of it is a lack of empathy, a lack of understanding. And so we blame people for the situation that they're in. And so I might say, hey, look, I went to school, I worked hard, I got a job, I sacrificed, I did all of these things, you can do the same, you go do the same. Why should I have to subsidize somebody else for their poor decision-making. That's the rhetoric that we hear. That why should I have to do that? Because I'm not the one that did it. They did it. They put themselves in that situation. But again, we don't understand. Maybe I was able to go to school because I never had to make a decision between having to support my family or get my education. Maybe I wasn't tested with that. Maybe had I had the same circumstances of life as somebody else, I would be in the exact same situation. And what's very fascinating is that we find in the ayah of the Quran, that when they're told to spend from what Allah has given you, what Allah has provided you, those who disbelieve say to those who believe that should we give money, should we give food to people that if Allah wanted to, He could have fed them. If Allah wanted to provide for them, He would have fed them. Why do I have to take this responsibility on? In antum illa fi You're in manifest error. Your entire way of looking at the world is corrupt. It's incorrect. That's not what our religion teaches us. We're not taught to blame people for the circumstances that they're in. We're taught that when someone comes for help, we say, how can we help? What can we do? That is the prophetic example of the Prophet sallallahu and the thing that prevents it, you know, the thing that prevents us from acting like that, as simplistic as it sounds, it's a matter of ego. 
It's a matter of selfishness. See, we know the story of Adam and Shaitan. That Shaitan was told to bow down to Adam Islam, and he said, I'm better than him. I'm created from fire and he's created from clay. And we can look at that objectively and we say, that's ludicrous. He had no hand in what he was created out of. Allah created him out of fire. He had no control over that. Why is he getting arrogant about that? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, we have that same mentality so many times. We have that same mentality. Well, I did this. I did that. Why do I need to worry about somebody else? But the Prophet ﷺ, he grieved over everybody else. The struggles that they went through kept him up at night. And his example, we see how his example, that selfishness manifests itself in the examples of other companions. See, Abu Bakr's father, Abu Quhafa, had not become Muslim for a long time. Until the conquest of Mecca, until roughly like 20 years after Revelation. Now imagine, you know, if you know someone that has accepted Islam later on in life, that one of the most difficult tests that they face is, I've been blessed with Iman, I want my parents to also have Iman. And it's a very difficult test that people go through. We can imagine that it was no different for Abu Bakr that he's accepted Islam, he's tasted the sweetness of Iman, of course he wants his father to convert. Of course he wants his father to have that iman, to have that blessing. So we can imagine how much dua he makes every day. How much he's praying, how much he's stressed about it, how much he's worrying about it. How much he desires more than almost anything else in the world for his father to accept Islam. And then when they go back to Mecca, his father says, I have decided to become Muslim. And Abu Bakr takes him to the Prophet And he takes his shahada. Right? Something that we can imagine he's been wanting for like 20 years. And Abu Bakr begins to cry. The Prophet asks him, he says, Ya Abu Bakr, like tears of joy? He said, no, tears of sadness. What do you mean tears of sadness? He said, I would give this moment up in a heartbeat, in the blink of an eye. Because I would rather that you experience this with Abu Talib than for me to experience this with my father. I would rather that you experience this feeling with Abu Talib, if Abu Talib had accepted Islam, than for me to enjoy this and for you not to have enjoyed it. That's selflessness. That's compassion. That's empathy in the heat of the moment. That even in one of perhaps the happiest moments of his life, He's still thinking about somebody else. And so when we hear those patterns, that, oh, they love the prophets more than they love themselves, that's what that means. That's what that means, that they preferred, they gave preference to the prophets of Allah who are they more than their own selves, even in their most personal and happiest of occasions. That's what that selflessness is. That's what that compassion is. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. There's another very interesting story that happens around the time of the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa made an announcement that we're going on an expedition. 
And normally when that announcement would be made, there would be some information given out, like where we're going, how long we're going, what needs to be prepared, these types of things. But this time he was very secretive. He didn't tell anybody. And so people are trying to find out because they need to make arrangements. Like, I need to know how long am I going to be away from home so I have provision for my family. Where are we going so I know what to pack? They, you know, they have these logistical questions, you could say almost. But there's no word. So everyone's trying to figure out. So they go to Aisha, they ask her even. She says, I have no idea. So one of the companions, Hatib ibn Abi Balta, and if you know his name, it's from this story. Right? He sits down and he's assessing and he's analyzing and he realizes, okay, you know, the Quraysh, they just violated the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, this other thing happened, that happened, we must be marching on Mecca. He, this is what he deduces that we must be marching on Mecca. So Hatta, now, it's important to understand who he is before we get to what he did. Okay? Hatta, he was a muhajir. So he left Mecca and he went to Medina. So he has this distinction. That he is one of those people who emigrated for the sake of Islam. So he is a muhajir. He took part in the battle of Badr. A special group of 300 some odd companions that Allah praises in the Quran. He has this special status. He was also there at the signing of the treaty of Hudaybiyah when the other oath was taken under the tree. Another group that is praised by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these three very special distinctions are held by Hatib that sets him apart even amongst that great generation of Sahaba, right? He's got these notches in his belt, these accomplishments that other people don't have. So now Hatib realizes, okay, we must be going to Mecca. So he writes a letter to the Quraysh saying essentially, the Prophet is coming for you. Do whatever you got to do, but he's coming. He finds a, a lady who's traveling back and forth and he gives her the letter. He says, I need you to secretly take this, go and deliver it to the Quraysh. Okay. So this woman, you know, traveling back and forth, she takes it, she hides it, she sets out. The angel Jibreel comes to the Prophet and he informs him and he says that there is a woman with this description. She's traveling from here to there. She's got a letter that you need to retrieve. You need to go and get it. And so the Prophet dispatches Ali radiallahu anhu, another companion, they go out, and sure enough, they find this woman matching that description on that route, and they stop her and they say, give us the letter. I don't know what you're talking about. Look, we know you have this letter, give us the letter. I don't know what you're talking about. So they go back and forth and they say like, look, neither were we lied to, nor was the Prophet lied to. Right, neither, neither would the Prophet lie to us, nor would the angel Jibreel lie to him. We know that you have it, this easy way or hard way type of thing. She's okay, fine. She asks him to turn around. She goes into her, into her hair or whatever, and she takes out the letter. She had stitched it up in her, in her clothing, in her body, and gives it to them. They bring it back to the Prophet The letter is read out to him. And Umar when he stands up, he says, Ya Rasulullah, this man is a munafiq. He needs to be executed. He says, hold on. One second. Let's call Hatim. So they call for Hatib. They call him and they say, Hatib, what's going on? What did you do? Why did you do this? He says, Ya Rasulullah, first of all, I'm not a munafiq. Right? He's defending his iman. Instead of defending his life, he's defending, I'm a believer. No matter what I do, Allah's going to make you victorious. I believe that. But here's the problem, Ya Rasulullah. My family in Mecca is not networked in with the major tribes like everybody else. 
And so if something goes down, my family's going to be the first ones to lose their lives. All I was hoping, and look, I know that you're going to win and I want us to win. I was just hoping that this little favor would help my family so that they're spared. That's all. Now Umar he stands up, he says, okay, fine, maybe he's not a munafiq, but Ya Rasulullah, he's still a traitor. He's still a traitor and he needs to be executed. Right? This is a matter of national security. There are lives at risk. Because what's supposed to be a surprise attack, if it's no longer a surprise, is going to be massive casualties. This is a very serious issue. And not only that, but you have revelation confirming what happened. You have physical evidence showing you what happened. You have a confession about it. This is an open and shut case. And this is of the highest levels of severity. And the Prophet says, he's telling the truth. It wasn't out of ill will. He was just concerned for his family. And you know what? Allah says about the people of Badr, go on and do whatever you want because Allah has forgiven you. Allah has forgiven you. Now, now the, the key thing here is also a beautiful story that we can extract many lessons from. But the key one that I want to focus on is understanding this. See, when we talk about good conduct and good character and empathy and being nice to people and being compassionate, when we say all these things, inevitably what happens is someone says, okay, well, that's all well and nice, but sometimes we got to get down to business. Sometimes things are serious and we got to act in a certain manner. Sometimes things are on the line, we don't have time to mess around and we have to act a certain way. This stuff is all nice, it's all good, and then usually, yeah, we should do that, but sometimes things get tough and we can't act that way. And what the Prophet showed us is that when things were at their most difficult, when the situation was dire and severe and an emergency and there were lives at risk, he still, in that moment, in that heat of the moment, he still knew how to act with compassion and mercy. And that is why he is the example to be followed because even in the most difficult of times, it's easy for any of us to be compassionate when things are easy. It's very easy to be nice to your parents, nice to your kids when everyone's getting along. It's a lot more difficult when things are tense. It's a lot more difficult after an argument. It's a lot more difficult to enact those good behaviors and good conducts when there's something else going on. But the Prophet ﷺ, this is why he is the pinnacle of good character. This is why he is the example set to be followed. Because no matter what the situation, he always knew how to act with compassion and mercy. And this is why his empathy, his intelligence, his manner and conduct of dealing with people is something that we need to study and we need to implement. Because that level of compassion is something that we need. Not only do we need it in our families, but we need it in our communities. And it starts with each and every single individual to enact that, to look at that example, to look at that sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, and to make dua to Allah, to make us of those that have good character, that make, make us of those who act merciful with the people and that are a force of good. اللهم آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وكذاب النار اللهم انصر الإسلام والمسلمين في كل مكان وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Very quickly, uh, a couple of announcements. The Friday Family Night with Sheikh Faqih is tonight. The topic is burning house, the destructive elements in the household. Sunday the 10th, there's a blood drive from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Walk-ins are welcome. 
Sunday the 10th, there's a boutique and yard sale, so please join the masjid. And the Cal Islamic University registration is live at www.calislamic.com. Make almost a lot.